All right, it is time for us to get started. We're going to be starting in James chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there. It's James chapter 1. Now, the book of James is probably one of my favorite books for several different reasons. One of the first reasons is that it is one of the most plain-speaking books in the Bible. So if you are wanting to find a book that's not going to care about how it approaches things or your feelings or anything like that, James is your book. It is going to be very direct. It's going to be right to the point. James, I describe James, it's almost like, almost like your older brother who's actually trying to give you advice, actually trying to be helpful, but he doesn't care at all how you feel about it. That's kind of the way you can describe the book of James in a nutshell. Is he's not trying to sugarcoat anything. He's getting right to the point. So just for a little bit of background on this book, this is the only book in the New Testament that can be called wisdom literature. Now, what's wisdom literature? Does anybody have some other examples of wisdom literature? Any other examples in the Bible? Proverbs. Proverbs is one. Ecclesiastes is another. Books that are literally about giving you Proverbs. That's really the idea here. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and James all are proverbial teachings. I'm going to give you these short, pithy statements that help you to understand the world as a whole and understand doctrines as a whole. That's really a simple way of breaking these down. So this particular book is really about how Christians should behave themselves. And it's a short, practical book of how a Christian should live. So if you want a how-to guide, that's James. James is a how-to guide in the New Testament. We can go look at Proverbs, go look at Ecclesiastes, and we see practical uh, teachings and good examples of how one should live. But this one is dedicated specifically to Christians. It's not just good for everybody. This is specifically how Christians should live. So going through a little bit, James is a book of common sense, similar to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And it's practical advice on how to practice true religion and how to explain it. So, that's kind of the main background. The author, there's some dispute over which James this is. Most people tend to think this is James, the brother of Christ. And that's kind of the attitude that's taken with it. There's a lot of evidence to support that. But there's also some evidence that it was the James the Apostle or some of the other Jameses that are in the Scriptures as well. But kind of the main one that is held to is that it is James the brother of Christ. So if you think about that from that perspective, Jesus' brothers were not believers for a long time. They did not believe what he had to say. They did not follow after him. In fact, they kind of made fun of some of this. So if this is the brother of Christ, then this is a non-believer who followed after his brother and is writing about how one should live as a Christian. So it's kind of an interesting thought about it. Again, that's not, there's nowhere that it says James, the brother of Christ, wrote this book, but that is how some of the historical evidence tends to lend to that idea. So just for a little bit of context on that. So the theme of the book, as we talked about, is the practice of true religion. If you want a key verse, something to kind of hold on to and say this is kind of the crux of the book, it's James 1.22. James 1.22 is the key verse, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Now this is something that, this book is one that has faced some very sharp criticism. If you go back to the Reformation movement, many of us are probably familiar with the name Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the wall of a or to the door of a cathedral, explaining all his problems with the Catholic Church, was one of the founding members of the Protestant Reformation, which brought about most of the Protestant denominations we know today. So this guy, when he was writing about this, he said it is a right strawy epistle because it talked about faith having works. And he did not believe that. He did not hold to that idea. He, in fact, he actively taught against that because he believed that that was a corruption that the Catholic Church had brought. When in reality, James describes later on in this book what that actually means and what it means to have faith connected with works. So, kind of that's the main background for this book. So we're going to go ahead and get into chapter 1. Just chapter 1. And if someone could just read verses 1 and 2. All right, so this is the beginning of the letter that James is writing. So this, in this one passage, it describes who the author is and who he's writing to. Now, if you're looking at a book of the Bible, the main points to describe about context is, first of all, who's writing, who's he writing to, why is he writing, and what's the point? So those are the main ways you can look at a context of a passage, and it helps it really to come to light. Because if I'm looking at a passage specifically, for instance, the book of Revelation, and I know that the book of Revelation has to do primarily with the Roman Empire and the fall of the Roman Empire. And if I keep that in mind at first, it's going to help me as I read throughout the whole thing to not get distracted by all the imagery that's taking place. So, starting off, James, a servant of Christ. A servant. The word here is, the Greek word is doulos. Literally, it means a bondservant, a slave. It implies obedience. The statement that has been connected to it is, I don't know any law except my master's. That is kind of the attitude that James is taking with this. He's saying, I am subservient to Christ. He is the Lord, I am under him. Which, if this is the brother of Christ, really adds some context to this. He's saying, I am the slave or the servant of my brother, not just the Lord. So it's kind of an interesting take there. It implies that he is following after him. It implies humility. You would look at Matthew chapter 16. That's Matthew chapter 16. Specifically, we're going to be looking in verse 24. Then said Jesus and his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denying himself. James is not saying that I am anything high. He's lowering himself under the Lord, and he's saying, I am a servant. Now, what is the point of these introductions? If we go throughout the scriptures, we see many different introductions. Paul would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Peter would say the same. So what's the point of these introductions? Why, why give this introduction? Why can't it just say, James, writing to you? What's the point of these? Any guesses? Predominantly, this is to establish authority. To say who I am, why I'm writing, and who is behind what I'm writing. So, when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, what's he saying? I'm an apostle, I have authority, listen to what I have to say. 
James is saying, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, what I am writing, I am holding to the standard, this is under God. What I'm saying is not going to violate what God has to say. I'm under him. I'm a servant of his. <clears throat> so the next thing he says is to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, what's he referring to here? Who do you think the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad means? 12 tribes of Israel? It's a great, added to, a great guess to have with it because 12 tribes is what's usually referred to as Israel. Now, here's the question. <coughs> Excuse me, the Tennessee allergies have got me today, too. So, were the Jews scattered abroad at this time? In the first century, were the Jews facing scattered persecution? No. So why would just Jews be scattered abroad? <coughs> kind of a trick question. Sorry about that. They wouldn't be. They wouldn't be. Who James is writing to are Jewish Christians. <coughs> Jewish Christians. Those who are followers of Christ, but due to persecution, have been scattered abroad. Got a frog in my throat. <clears throat> so, he's writing to these people <clears throat> who have been scattered abroad to the known world. We see this at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, where Paul or Saul was going about scattering people abroad and sending them to all the known world. They were in Jerusalem at first. Remember Acts chapter 2? That's where the church started. They were in Jerusalem, hearing what the apostles had to say, building the church as a whole. And then as a result of persecution, were spread out throughout the known world. <coughs> so James is trying to encourage these people who are facing persecution, who are struggling with this scattering abroad. You're not at home anymore. You're not in your home country. And on top of that, this is a result of your new life in Christ, something you didn't do before. And now you're having to change every single aspect of your life to follow after him. So practically, <clears throat> you're going to need some encouragement and some strength to get through this. So he's going about this, trying to show them what he's supposed to be doing, or what they're supposed to be doing, and how they can have this confidence in Christ. So, <coughs> there we go, that got it. Finally. Man, all right. So, they had lost, oh. Your Thank you very much, I appreciate that. <laughs> this is why we have a church family right there. When someone is struggling, there are cough drops available. So, as a result of all this, <coughs> James is writing to them, trying to encourage them to face these persecutions, to face these problems, and to do it in such a way that would glorify God. Verse 2, we started reading. Imagine for a minute that you've gotten a letter from a well-known member of the church, 
And it starts off <coughs> to the Cookville Church of Christ. Stay strong when things go wrong. Probably most of us are thinking this is not about to be a fun letter. This is not about to be very encouraging. It's about to be talking about some very sad things, very discouraging things. So, he tells them to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, that's New King James. The King James renders it temptations. <coughs> so, if we're hearing temptations, what's our immediate knee-jerk response? What is a temptation? Temptation to do what? To sin. That's our first knee-jerk response, to sin. It's a knee-jerk response to sin. So, is James saying here, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various temptations to sin. Is that what he's saying? Temptations to quit in the face of difficulties. When things are not going right, don't give up. In fact, he says count it all joy when you fall into these various temptations. Now, I don't know about you. <clears throat> but when something's not going right, I don't find happiness in it. I'm not finding happiness that my voice is not very good today. I don't find happiness in those things. So how can I count it all joy when I fall into various problems? Verse 3. Someone could read that, please. <clears throat> Knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience. <clears throat> How many of you have heard the, the old joke that says, I prayed for patience and God gave me teenagers? <laughs> That's it right there. That's it right there. How can I have patience if I've never had to face anything difficult? If I've never had to be patient, how can I grow stronger in patience? In anything. How can I be strong if I've never exercised? It's just not going to happen. There was an old statement I heard that was pretty good. He said, it's, I believe he was some sort of preacher of some sort, <clears throat> but he made a statement, I prayed for courage, God gave me danger. I prayed for strength, God gave me difficulties. I prayed for patience, God gave me situations to be patient. I prayed to be loving, and God gave me hurting people. That really is a good description of what the Christian life is about. Now, that's not saying that God is sitting here saying, okay, well, so-and-so really needs to work on their encouragement. So I'm going to send about every single person who I know is hurting to send them to that person. That's not the attitude of what's taking place here. That's not what God is doing. However, God does have situations in our lives to test us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. He can use the situations that are happening around you for His glory. So, with this situation here, what did the church need to do at its founding? 
How does something grow? It spreads. It goes to other places. As of this particular point, I believe it's recorded that the oldest church that's ever been founded was in Ethiopia. Ethiopia, how does that sound familiar from biblical teachings? The eunuch. He heard what Philip had to say, Acts chapter 8, said he went on his way rejoicing. Do you think that that eunuch, when he got home, just kept all that to himself? No, he's probably saying, hey guys, okay, you have, you have these books, the Old Testament that I was reading. I was reading Isaiah, so we all probably have these as Jews. He says, guys, look at this. When I was in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, I met this guy. And he told me what this means. And he would explain it to others. That's how the early church started. Starts in Jerusalem. Now, if we're looking at historical evidence of Jerusalem, a historical circumstance... Why would Jerusalem not be a good place for the church to stay? Exclusively. Why would it not be a great place? Word wasn't going to be spread. Your audience is mostly against you. Very strongly against you, in fact. So if I'm wanting an organization to grow rapidly, we read Acts chapter 2 and we see... 3,000 souls are baptized into Christ. We say, wow, that's amazing. But then we look at historical descriptions of how big that crowd actually was. It was in the millions. So 3,000 souls were converted. Yes, that's awesome. That's incredible. But in terms of percentages, that's not a very high conversion rate. So if I'm looking at this, if God in his master wisdom and understanding is trying to spread the borders of the kingdom, something's going to have to happen to break this group up. Not because he wants to hinder what they're doing, but because he wants to take what they're doing and send it abroad. <clears throat> if you look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41, I believe, going to the end of the chapter, you really see an example of what the early church looked like. And it tells you exactly how it was structured and the uh, practices they followed. First of all, they were teaching. They were hearing what had to be said. They were encouraging those who were in need. They were giving of their own means to support one another, to strengthen one another. And they were following in the apostles' doctrine and in prayers, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So they were worshiping, they were evangelizing, and they were engaged in benevolence. That's the early church. That's what they were doing. That's how they functioned. So God is taking that through these persecutions, not causing the persecution, mind you, but he's using that persecution to expand the borders of his kingdom. So imagine for a minute that we just find out from the city council that the city of Cookville is going to start imprisoning and killing Christians. What are you going to do? Probably leave. It's probably the first thing you're going to do, at least most of us. Unless it just can't happen, in which case you have to stay. But most of us would probably leave. 
Now, if you're a Christian and you're committed to the Word of God, just like we talked about this morning, is that going to be secret for long? Is that going to be hidden for long? No, someone's going to hear about it. Someone's going to talk to you about it. You probably have a conversation with somebody and maybe convert that soul. Next thing you know, rinse and repeat and you have a church. And that right there is the first century. That was the growth of the church in the first century. In fact, it was growing so rapidly. First of all, the Jews freaked out about it. They were terrified of what was happening. But they were terrified when Christ was here too. So they were scared of how big it was growing when Christ was there. Now, Rome didn't care. Rome didn't care what was going on at that time. They were just saying, okay, Jerusalem's acting up again. That's all they knew about. And as a result of that growth, they thought, in fact, early writings described that they thought that the first century church was just a sect of Judaism, just another hyper-religious sect of Judaism, which was a recognized religion under the Roman Empire. So they, there was no problem with that existing. What happened was this kept growing faster and faster and faster, and it was spreading all over the empire. And if you're the Roman emperor who's getting very inaccurate descriptions of the church, in fact, one description I heard of the early church that was written to a Roman emperor was that this was a group that was following after a warrior king who ate human flesh and drank blood and called each and they were engaged in ancestral relations because they all called each other brother and sister. You're a Roman emperor and you hear, that's a crazy cult. That's what they thought the early church was. As a result of these inaccurate descriptions, as a result of these really just hatred of what they were teaching in the first place, that's when the persecution started to really pick up from Roman perspective. Not just Jewish, but Roman. So, you're a first century Christian, you're scattered abroad. You are in an unfamiliar world, probably a language you don't speak. You're surrounded by a culture you don't understand and you're trying to live a Christian life, likely either by yourself or with a very small group. Have fun. That's the life they were living. So if James is writing a letter to them, he's trying to encourage them through this, trying to say, okay, here's how you can live in this environment, this difficult environment, and follow after Christ. He's saying, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience. He's encouraging them, these trials are going to make you stronger. They're going to make you stronger. The sort of humorous example that I have is I've moved roughly 12 times in my life. I heard earlier today that I was called a professional mover, and I kind of can agree with that at this point. 12 times you move. The first time, it's very difficult. The second time, also very difficult. Third time, very difficult. Twelfth time, very difficult, but less so because you know how to do it. You know what's coming. You know what the problems are. You know you're going to lose something. You don't know what it is. It may be something that was nice, something that's not nice. You don't know. It could be your pencil or it could be your TV. One of the two. So you're going to lose something. It's going to be difficult. But by the twelfth time, you understand it a little bit better. You understand a little bit better how this is supposed to happen. Now, if you're a Christian, you're scattered abroad, what do you not have now? You don't have any distractions. Nothing's holding you back. You're very mobile at this point. 
And if you have to be run off from the next city you go to, well, I've been through this before. I know how to handle this. I know how to handle the stresses of it. I'm not going to be blindsided when it happens next time because I've already seen it happen. If America decided tomorrow to officially persecute Christianity on a national scale, it would take the vast majority of us by surprise. It would blow our minds. Now, we might say, no, it won't. I know things are getting bad. But the second the police show up to your door, it's going to take you by surprise. That would take you by surprise. It would shock you. Now, if that's happened to you once, is the next time going to shock you? Is the next time going to freak you out? Probably not as much. Still, it's going to be scary, but it's not going to be as bad as the first time. He's encouraging them to continue in this, to stay strong in the face of this, because there, are a, there is a bombardment of temptations that are coming your way. A bombardment of things that are going to try to get you to quit, to give up. In fact, most of the time in these persecutions, all it would take to avoid them is to give up Christ. That's all it would take. Just to say, I don't believe in Christ. Think about how easy that sounds to do. I either can say, I don't believe in Christ anymore, but deep down I, I can say, I don't really believe that. I do believe in God, but I can just get out of the situation. But as a result of that, you're sinning against God. Or you can face excruciating punishment and torture. Not, doesn't sound like a very good option there. Doesn't sound great. But James is encouraging them to continue on. He calls them, it's interesting here, in verse 3 he says, my brethren. He's saying we're all in this together. We're family. We're a part of this. We're experiencing the same kind of things. Just because they were scattered abroad doesn't mean the ones in Jerusalem had it any easier. Doesn't mean the ones that were left behind had a great, wonderful life in paradise. It was going to be difficult for all of them. Verse 4, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If we understand that man can sin, why on earth would James put that you can be perfect? That patience can have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing? I thought we all made mistakes. I thought we all slipped up. So how can someone be perfect but still make mistakes? Mature. That is a great description. Mature. You are fully developed fully formed. All the pieces are there. It's not perfect in the sense of I am sinless or I never make a mistake. It's perfect in the sense of complete or whole. <clears throat> so he's basically telling them all the pieces are here already. You've heard the word of God. You're a Christian. But this persecution, this temptation, this trial is going to be the last piece. Because if we are never tried for our faith, we never have to prove that we have it. If we never face difficulties, there's no way that we can even truly show that we are followers of God. Think about that for a minute. How many 
if you can remember something that you weren't really sure about. It was right, but you weren't really sure. And then someone argued with you about it. There's a difference in those two stances, right? At first, I can believe this without consequence. Someone argues with you, now I have to know what the truth is. I have to stand for it, or I have to give it up. It's one of the two. That conflict has arisen. Now this one might start a fight, but there was a friend of mine back in the day who loved to talk about little scientific facts. And one of the things that he liked to bring up, especially around me because I would argue with him about it, was he said, you know the little harvestman spiders? What people call them, little harvestman spiders? Granddaddy long legs, as other people call them? He said, that is a spider. Scientifically, that's not true. I heard all my life growing up that it was they were too small, their faces were too small, they couldn't bite you, but they're very venomous. It's not true. They have no venom glands. They don't have two body segments, so they're not considered spiders. They are arachnids, but they're not spiders. And they have no spinnerets. So all the pieces are there. It's not a spider. That guy would argue till he was blue in the face about that. And I could literally show him evidence. I could show him teach, uh, stuff online, scientific articles. I could show him anything. He refused to believe it. He may not have been convinced at first, but the second you argue with him, he's standing on that till the day he dies. That's a stupid example. It's a goofy example. But as Christians, if we're never tried for what we believe, how are we going to be committed to learning more? To understanding for sure what we stand on? That's the quickest way to motivate us to know something. I'm sure many of us have had <clears throat> an example where maybe we were talking to a friend and they brought up something in the Bible and they said, this is what the Bible says. And as a result of that, you know that's not right. I know that's not right. Maybe I don't know why it's not right, but I know it's not right. Probably for the next week and a half, that was all you were thinking about. Every spare moment you had, you were researching it, you were throwing open the Bible, you were looking at dictionaries, you were looking over in uh, commentaries and everything else, trying to figure out what this actually says because someone tested you on it. Someone tried to make you prove it. That's what James is describing here. He says, you're going to have this perfect, this complete life because you're going to be tested. But this is not just for everybody. It's not just temptations. It's for those who overcome these trials, these temptations. Just facing a trial is not enough to make you grow. Trials either make or break a Christian. That's the way that it works. You're either going to grow weaker because you're going to give up, or you're going to go stronger because you refuse to quit. Those are your two options. And so what he's telling these people is if you're going to stay committed to the Lord, you're going to get stronger because of this. If you quit, well, this letter's not to you. So let's continue on. Someone could take verses 5. Let's say verses 5 through 8. Someone could read that, please. Nothing with the wind, the car. 
shall receive any thing of yours. The double-minded man is unfaithful. All right, so starting here, he says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. If any of you lacks wisdom, who does this remind you of? Solomon. Reminds you of Solomon. Asking for wisdom. I need this wisdom. Now, is God going to heavenly endow you with the wisdom you need for every situation? Is he just going to magically, it's, uh, oh, okay, that makes sense now. Is that how this works? What is wisdom? Let's ask that question first. What is wisdom? The application, the application of knowledge. What do you have to have before you can have wisdom? Knowledge. You have to have knowledge. You have to have the pieces in place before you can connect the dots. I'm sure many of us have seen an example, maybe in a TV show or a movie, where the detective has the cork board out and it has all the pictures on it and he has the little red twine that he's connecting everything to. Can he connect the red twine to anything if the pictures and the documents aren't there? You can't connect the dots until you have all the pieces. So that's what he's explaining to them. He's trying to show them. He's saying, you have to have this knowledge. You have to grow closer to God. But if you have need wisdom, ask of him. Ask of God. Pray to have better understanding. Now, we have this book that we can put all the pieces together. We can read, we can study, we can grow, we can understand a little bit better. I know there's been so many examples and times for me where I've been reading a passage and then as I'm reading it, it'll catch my attention for a second. I don't know exactly why it caught my attention. You read it again, you read it again, then you say, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. And you flip over to another passage and you say, wait a minute, that's connected, that's the same idea. That's what he's talking about here. And then a picture begins to form. The wisdom that we have comes from when we can take those pieces, take those moments that we understand, and learn and grow from them, and apply them to our lives. So the next time I face a difficult situation and say, okay, these people are really trying to hinder me in my faith. They're, trying to, they're discouraging me. Maybe they're making fun of my faith. They're bringing me down. And then I think about 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Evil communications corrupt good morals. And maybe I can look at myself and say, wait a minute, I'm tempted to stray away from this. That's how our thought processes should be. In Psalm chapter 1, <clears throat> where David is describing that this blessed man is one who meditates on his word day and night, that means that when we are facing situations when we're out in public, there's verses coming to mind. There's teachings of Christ coming to mind and saying, okay, well, this is wrong because of this. This is, this is right because of this passage. This is what I should be doing. The pieces form. The pieces come together. But notice what else he says. Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, New King James. When we say the word liberal, it doesn't usually have a good connotation for us. But what does that word literally mean? In abundance. He gives it without a limit. 
He gives it liberally. It's freely. He's not stingy with it. He's not, okay, you get just a little bit. It's not the Ebenezer Screw situation where he struggles to give away one coin. He gives it willingly. He wants you to know. He doesn't want to hide anything from you. Remember, that was the first thing that the devil tried to tempt Adam and Eve with, was that God's trying to keep you from stuff, trying to hinder you. But how does God actually view it? God says, I'm giving you everything. I gave you the opportunity to choose to follow me, and I gave you everything you need to know about me. Everything to the letter. The reality is God has given us everything that we can understand about him. The stuff he hasn't told us is stuff we're not meant to understand. How many of you think you can grasp and really scientifically explain the spiritual world? Why do you think God didn't describe it that in depth? We'd spend all of our time trying to figure it out because there's no answer. There's no physical answer we can find about it. He told us the things that are important, the things that we need to know. So he's trying to encourage these people to look for this, to follow after God, to remember who the source is. You're not going to find this wisdom just of your own self. You find it because of your source, who is God. You follow after God. God is the source of these things you need to know. So he continues on. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Probably heard this a hundred times. I know I've said it a couple times. It's the same idea of you pray for rain, bring an umbrella. Why? You're having confidence in this. I'm not just asking God for things just as a wishful thinking. I'm not just saying, Lord, give me strength, and then think that he's never going to give me anything. What was the point of the prayer if I didn't think I was going to get anything in return? Why do I pray to God for strength, for healing, for comfort, if I don't think anything's going to happen? Now, nothing's going to happen miraculously. God's not going to appear from heaven in a shining light and tell you everything's going to be okay. No. But he might have other people in your life who will notice something's not right with you. They'll know something's bothering you, and they reach out. You find strength in one another. Because we all are following after the same source. All following after the same source. So he says that he that doubts is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Frederick Nietzsche was a philosopher slash psychiatrist who made the famous statement and coined it, God is dead. He believed that rationalism and modernism was going to do away with God as a whole because now we are beyond the superstitious understanding of some mythical being in the sky. One of his biggest critiques of Christianity, the biggest critique he had, <clears throat> he said Christianity makes no sense because his God condemns investigation. He condemns investigation. I don't think Nietzsche read the Bible. Because over and over and over again, what does God tell his people? Prove it. Study. Investigate. I'm not afraid of being investigated. He said, I've shown you everything you need to know. Feel free to look. 
This is the source. He's telling them not to doubt. It's not about not investigating. You're not to doubt. Don't do something and in the back of your mind say, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't work. Christianity has never been about a blind leap in the dark. It's never been what it's about. It's very strongly about investigating, knowing the facts, seeing the evidence that God has given. What happened when Thomas was investigating the Lord? He said, I'm not going to believe unless what? Unless I can see the holes in his hands and in his feet and in his side, I'm not going to believe. Did Jesus get mad at Thomas? Did Jesus go up to Thomas and say, how dare you not trust I was back? No. He said, my hands and my side. Now, what did he tell Thomas after that, though? He said, you believe because you saw. More blessed are those who have not seen and believe. He's not condemning Thomas for what he did. But he is telling him, work on faith. Work a little bit stronger on that. He says, I proved my point. I'm not afraid to show you what you need to know, but work on it. Work on it. Because those who doubt, they're like a wave of the sea. Think about it for a minute. How many of you have been on a cruise? Just a show of hands real quick. How many of you have been on a cruise or on a boat in some form of rough water? All the hands that went up, most of them went down. Okay. Back in 2019... I was fortunate to go on a trip to Europe and we went on the Mediterranean Sea on a cruise. We went in March and if you know nothing about the Mediterranean Sea, it's very rough in the winter and early spring months. Very, very rough. This is a cruise liner, mind you, a very big ship and it's doing this. I found out very quickly that I do get seasick. That was, that's what I think of when I think of this passage. He's like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. There's no stability to it. One minute he's over here, the next minute he's over here, the next minute he's following after some teaching way over here. Christians are meant to be stable, convinced, committed. How can I be convinced and committed of something that I doubt? How can I go into something, give my whole heart and my whole commitment to it, give my money, give of my time, give of my life to something that in the back of my mind I'm saying, this may or may not be true. You don't doubt. You're committed to finding out. And if there are doubts, God says, prove it. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is true. That's what we're to be doing. It's not about just doing what everyone else has done throughout the years, but we're to investigate, to show. We are following after this passage, and he's showing them, look, you're going to need wisdom. You're going to need this wisdom, but you can't be doubting. You can't be doubting. Because, again, think about the situation that they're in. You're going to face a literal execution block and have doubt? Be second-guessing things? No, you got to be committed as a whole. Know what you're teaching. He says, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's saying, if you're not committed to what you're asking, don't expect to get it. 
don't expect to get it. He's saying no for certain. He says he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Reminds me of what we talked about in the sermon this morning with Matthew chapter 6. He's gonna, no man can serve two masters. He will either love the one and hate the other, either who will despise the one and serve the other. You can't serve both. You can't be committed to both. So he's holding to that point. And very quickly, we'll hit this next section. Verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Again, he is reminding them, don't hold to earthly sources. They pass away. The brother of low degree, the poor man, he can be exalted. But the rich man, the things he values, the thing he holds to, what's going to happen to it? It'll fade away. He says, as the grass withers, as the flower perishes, so the rich man's wealth is going to pass away. The things that he holds to that exalts him, it's going to fall away. The things that the poor man has, what's he exalted by? The Lord. Remember the source. Remember the source. Thank you very much for your attention, and I hope you have a great afternoon.